Welcome to Health System CIO's interview with Ashish Barad, Chief Digital and Information Officer at Allegheny Health Network. I'm Kate Gamble, Managing Editor and Director of Social Media. In this segment, Barad talks about how adding the IT shop to his purview is helping to improve alignment and create a more seamless experience for clinicians. The key role governance can play in getting away from the no culture that has defined IT. How he believes having access to the payer world can help improve patient engagement. And what he's doing to ensure practicing physicians have a seat at the table. So I definitely want to uh, want to talk about some of the work that your team is doing. Um, can you give a basic overview of Allegheny Health Network, where you are, what the, the relationship is with Highmark yeah. Health, just to give people kind of an idea? Yeah, happy to. Thanks for having me on, Kate. So Allegheny Health Network it just celebrated its uh, 10th year anniversary as a network. Allegheny General Hospital has been around for a very long time, but the confluence of the hospital system that we have now, which is a 14 hospital system as one entity owned by Highmark Health has been around uh, now for a decade. And so it's a $4 billion system. Annual revenue has about 2,000 employed providers. And then as part of a very successful clinically integrated network in the Western Pennsylvania region that is comprised around 7,500 providers. I think about 40% of those providers are primary care and 60% of those providers are specialists. So it's very diverse, I would say, provider group in the CIN and, and does very, very well in that capacity. But it's a unique place where, uh, again, Highmark Health, which is not a payer, uh, Highmark Inc. is, and I think sometimes people don't always get that nuance, but Highmark Health is yeah. you know, an enterprise that has a diversified business portfolio, it has, there's a dental company that's large, there's, there's other facets, there's actually a very large IT company, around 10,000 FTEs called NGEN that uh, serves the Greater Blues Network nationally. And then Highmark Inc. obviously is a fourth largest Blue Cross Blue Shield in America with around 6 million members. It's in all 50 states with a majority of its footprint in five states. And the largest obviously being in Pennsylvania, where corporate headquarters is and where I uh, live and work. And then Allegheny Health Network, again, is around Western Pennsylvania. We actually have called Westfield Hospital, small hospital in Western New York. So it is, it's a very unique healthcare setting in which there's alignment, what we call blendedness between the payer and the provider. So versus yeah. just the payer owning a provider and saying, go forth and be our brand in the market, which we are, it's truly a blended operating system, which is unique. I don't believe that exists anywhere else in the U.S., in an open capitalistic market, meaning, you know, we're yeah. not, you know, I have massive respect for Kaiser, but right. Kaiser is a closed system, but Allegheny Health Network, 50% of the claims are through Highmark, which obviously means that 50% of our claims are not. And so living in both worlds of being owned by a network that has a big payer, but also still interacting with every other payer makes it pretty complex. And um, so it, it makes it a fun challenge. Yeah, I, I certainly don't know of any other systems that have that type of arrangement. And I imagine that for you as Chief Digital Innovation Officer, it makes your job interesting and probably bodes well as far as what you're trying to do. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I am really lucky, I, I take it as, to have a lot of the technology shop under my banner, if you will. So I, I came in nine months ago. I was at Baylor Scott & White for the last 11 years prior to that. And I came in nine months ago to lead digital and virtual health uh, and solely digital and virtual health. Since that time, a lot of changes, which again, I say is, is a big positive, which is I now am the leader over all of IT and the EMR Epic and the clinical workflows of that as well. So not only do I have the digital strategy and the virtual health strategy, I also have the IT, you know, running business as usual, but also kind of what, what does that look like for the future of an IT shop and where healthcare is going? And then additionally, essentially acting as the chief medical informatics officer as well. So creating all the workflows inside the EMR to make sure that anything and everything we do in this, you know, digital virtual health world is being done in a way that's not in any way adding burden to our clinicians experience because we, we know where we are with clinician burnout, right? And we know where yeah. we are with staffing shortages and people leaving healthcare, both nurses and physicians and others, medical assistants all the way top, top to bottom. And so we, I think it's extremely important that anything we do, we're not adding to burden. And unfortunately through digital transformation, digital health up to this point in healthcare, I can't say that that's been the way that it's been done. I, I think it, to many, yeah. many clinicians would say it's just been additive. You haven't yeah. really removed any burdens, friction, pain points for me. You've just now asking me to do extra. So the fact that I have, I think of the digital shop, which includes virtual, the IT shop and the Epic shop under me allows me to create one integrated roadmap that really is connected and thoughtful about how each piece connects with the other. And then I look at that shop and then look at my Highmark health colleagues in their roadmap and make sure that there's alignment at all levels. And I think that's, if, if we can do that and really connect all the pieces in that way seamlessly, I think that's incredible work that really will be a, kind of a, a shining star in the, in the U.S., if you will. Yeah. So what was it like for you? You know, you did have digital and then to have IT added, that's, that's obviously a huge component. So how did you approach that? And was it something that, that has been kind of advantageous to you? So, yes. Okay. Great question. And I think I, I took a deep breath. It's <laughs> the first thing I did <laughs> right. said, because there's a lot going on in the digital virtual health world. And then, yeah. you know, an IT is certainly... It's an interesting point that you bring up. It is advantageous, so I'll say, but I'll give you some context to that, which is digital culture, right, is very different from legacy healthcare IT culture. So <laughs> I think of legacy healthcare IT has been, unfortunately, and it's because there's just been, you know, way too much on the plate, has been a no culture, if you will, you know, not always, but Sometimes I think if you ask the docs, if I went to IT and wanted something, you're kind of starting with a no, and then you got to go convince them to, to get to a yes. So it's kind of, yeah. a, uh, you know, we get, we got so much on the plate, budget constraints. We're really, we're really strapped for resources. So it's a no. And then I, I take the next progression of that journey to, uh, I get my teams to try to get to no because, right? So now you're getting into 
No, because of all these things that we have in front of us. So it makes them have to start thinking of their portfolio and their work, kind of what they have on their plate and why they can't necessarily, you know, do the extra work. Right. And so then step three in that journey for me is yes, if, right. So then mm-hmm. it's kind of getting to a, yeah, I think it's a great idea. It's wonderful. We're listening to you. It's the voice of the customer kind of stuff, but so maybe it's an if, there's a budget, if I had resources, if I had the team, if I had, you know, so starting to think of where you're not automatically starting with a no, but you're starting, yes, if I had X, Y, Z. And then I, I think the holy grail is if we can get to yes, because, you know, and so if we can say yes, because it's important to our strategy, because it allows, you know, us to move to consumer centric view. But that because it's important, it doesn't always mean yes to everything, but there's a strategy behind it, right? So going back to your question, it comes down to having IT underneath me now taking on that leadership in the digital is now getting into what we really need to do in healthcare, which is the infrastructure, right? So the infrastructure <laughs> is not currently where it needs to be for digital transformation. Yeah. And that's what I, I learned, you know, from other places I've been. As we know, we need to we need to really do the hard work of laying down the proper foundation infrastructure for us to do digital transformation. We all want to get to digital transformation quick and fast. And I think that was part of my career journey here was a little bit, to be just very frank, was a little bit of a moment of saying, gosh, I want to do the really cool, innovative stuff right now, right? And I and we are, and we certainly are still doing some of that, but it, it was that moment where you take a deep breath and say, all right, we really got to fix the foundation so we can move to speed later. And that, again, it's not as exciting. It's, it's not going to make podcast listeners, you know, salivate and say, oh my gosh, you know, that's so exciting, fun stuff you're doing today. But it's so essential and so crucial. So once I took on that role, realized that we actually had to do an epic refuel, which is what we're doing right now. And we just started to kick that off. And, you know, we came together really quickly as a health system and it needed to happen. But that led to a lot of non-standardization, right? One instance of Epic, but not really standardized workflows, not standardized registration, scheduling. Well, again, you can imagine, how do you do digital transformation if every clinic and every hospital is is registering patients different ways, right? With their different workflows, all within Epic, right? But we all know that that's not the same workflow. You can bypass workflows. So we're doing a lot of that now so we can digitize and then digitalize later. But again, not to say that it's a static, got to do this before we got to do that, but we can still do some other things in a digital transformation perspective. But I always say you can't personalize until you standardize, right? And so we want to get to personalized medicine, but you just, you got to standardize first. So to your point, the standardization work is really what's happening right now on the ground day to day. Yeah. And it's interesting that, as you said, you know, while you're doing this, there are digital initiatives that you can push forward. So an interesting balance, I'm sure, of you know, getting that standardization piece while also, you know, being able to to leverage some of the, the data and the digital tools to do the cool things that everyone wants to talk about. That's right. And the beauty is, Kate, and why I'm here and what big reason why it's not just living inside the infrastructure work is that we as an enterprise, Highmark Health as a, and with AHN, has an enterprise strategy called Living Health, which is that innovative stuff. So again, we're not putting pause or a stop button on any work we're doing within Living Health. It's just that we're also at the same time building the infrastructure. So 
uh, briefly just living health go over that just for a second so the yeah. you know the listeners can understand what we're driving towards but that is our strategy and so living health is at, at its very core saying that as a payer highmark is not going to utilize the denial of care as its main lever to decrease in total cost of care right i mean that is yeah. it, most payers have leveraged you know, utilization management, authorizations as their main lever to basically deny access to care. And I don't say that in a negative way. It's just the truth of a lever that's pulled, right? Oftentimes to, yeah. to, to decrease cost of care. So, you know, Highmark Health recognized, and I applaud Highmark Health for it to say, you know, we are really going to pull a very different lever, which is very difficult to pull, which is actually improving health outcomes of our mm-hmm. members. And by improving health outcomes of our members, that will then lead to sustainable decreased total cost of care for those members, right? That's a really tough premise. That's a really tough place to get to, obviously, because it does mean that we do have to move upstream. We do have to develop curated solutions for that member that is surfaced engaging with them at the right time that wants them to be engaged. That's a tough ask. You know, people aren't really used to engaging with their health care, you know, on a continual basis, right? We know that right. people, they seek out care maybe 2.1 times a year, I think is the number on average, you know, in the healthcare system. So now you're trying to get that to daily, weekly. It's a, it's a tough yeah. problem to solve, but I, I think it's absolutely the problem that we need to get to. So how do you do that with a payer who has a lot of levers that they can pull to engage members, right? They have a lot of ability to engage members, but recognition that it is a payer that's, that's reaching out to you. So I don't know how you feel, Kate, but sometimes with your payers yeah. reaching out to you to engage you in your care, you, you may not have as much trust, let's say, as if you're... Right you know, your, your personal doctor is doing that, right? Your care team that you trust, right? You, that you've been with for a long time. So Highmark's, you know, the living health premise is that the path to engagement is through our clinicians. Not only we want to go direct to members, direct to consumers as well, right? We know that, that it's not always through your clinicians, but we are absolutely going to say, how do we build engagement tools, you know, and product curated products in a way that it does surface through your care team. Now, every one of these can be double clicked on, right? But if that is built in a way that is, again, going back to my original comment, if you do that in a way that's just adding burden to the care teams by having more alerts Mm -hmm. put in front of them that they have to engage in, right? You're not going to get that engagement. So my job on the agent side is also to look at that and having Epic and the workflows under, under me is to say, how do we surface that to clinicians in a way that they see value in this, that the data is flowing back to them, but not data overload, right? Not alert fatigue, all these things that we talk about, but how do we do this in a way that they see value for their patients sitting in front of them, being with them in a MyChart message, whatever it may be, and to say, no, 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 I want to enroll my patient in this smoking cessation program for COPD because not only is it going to improve their care, increase their outcome, but I'm going to have eyes on them. I'm going to be able to see them through their journey. I'm going to engage them in the proper formats in which they want to be, whether that's digital, virtual, in-person, hospital, uh, asynchronous, so they feel like I'm connected to them. So that's a big part of the living health strategy is is really connecting both member and clinician together at the center of that journey. And if we do it that way, our theory is that engagement will will go up 
And that would then in turn improve outcomes and then in turn decrease total cost of care. Yeah, that's really interesting. It is a very different perspective than we hear. Gets into a lot of what you talked about with insurance and some of the perceptions there. But I also want to touch a little bit on the fact that you are a clinician physician and how that does affect the way that you think about some of these things. Yeah, you know, I appreciate that, Kate. If I may, I'll tell you a little bit about my trajectory and and why that that question is so important to me and at the root of who I am, which is a full-time, I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist and I was a full-time doc and section chief pediatric gastroenterology during COVID. I've always been inside the kind of intersection of IT, virtual health and digital health, but as I'm a doctor, we tend to do things off the side of our desks, you know, so I still do take on two full-time jobs, you know, at the same time. So I was practicing hundred percent, leading a whole division and loved it. And I love clinical care and providing care to my patients. You know, digital and virtual care was something that I saw that solved a problem, which was how do I get to my patients that can't come see me as a specialist and a kind of a super mm-hmm. specialist, meaning, right, there's not a lot of pediatric gastroenterologists in the country. And when you need one, you need one. If your kid has Crohn's disease, you don't really, you can't wait eight months to go see. Uh, oh, yeah. Right. So access is really important. You know, and again, I was in the state of Texas, a large state, obviously, or second largest state in the, in the U.S. And so I had a lot of patients driving eight hours to come see me, you know, that had Medicaid, TRICARE, self-pay that really didn't have access and weren't able to do it. And so virtual care, digital care, I got into it because it allowed me to be able to meet my patients where they are before that term was a term that's thrown around a lot, you know, and that was a decade ago. And so in 2013 is when I did the first video visit for our health system inside. And I built it inside Epic. It was being done on Skype, right? By some docs here and there, but nobody was building it inside the workflows of docs. So kind of made the recognition right. workflows matter. So that's kind of where I started in this world. But I get to COVID, you know, and what it what it really did. And as a frontline doc during COVID, obviously we transitioned to, to virtual overnight, right? And I remember that day very vividly. And all the doctors, again, Baylor Scott White's a large health system with I think about seven thousand employed physicians. So, you know, in fifty two hospitals, multi city in Texas, which is any other geography by multi-state. And everybody knew that I was the virtual guy. So everybody just started reaching out and saying, how do I do this? Right. And what do I do? And I I don't know how to do this. And so I kind of just became a very grassroots helper, if you will, and just started, you know, teaching and helping and, you know, off hours, whatever I could do to, to allow my fellow physicians connect with their patients that needed them, right? Because as we know during COVID, it wasn't just COVID, right? It was people still had heart attacks, people still had diabetes, people still had COPD, okay. right? And so how did those sure. patients access care when they're scared and afraid and we're closing down clinics? So I realized that there weren't enough clinicians at the table that were representing, you know, the voice of the end user, if you will, and building it out in a workflow to my earlier point in a way that wanted, that made the physician say, this is something I want to do when I want to use. So that perspective is why I'm doing what I'm doing to bring that voice to the table to make sure that, and I'm also a pusher. I push my fellow physicians to think outside the box and think consumer centric, not just one-sided to just be the voice of the physician, but also as a physician. And I still practice, which is really important, Kate, 
because I have you know mm-hmm. some credibility to say you yeah. know that I'm I'm one of you and I can go to the clinicians and say it's really important that we move upstream and offer these services that because there are disruptors coming in to disintermediate care and, and so telling that story but in a way that makes them understand and doing it in a way that says hey I'm removing two administrative burdens from you to ask you to do one more thing is a lot yeah. more appealing to them than to just add one more thing. Yeah. And being someone who's in their shoes, it, it means a lot more. I can see coming from you, especially when you're talking about workflow and things. I think that they would trust that you're not going to give them something that doesn't fit into the workflow or, or just doesn't make sense with the way that they do things. That's right. And Kay, you know, it's, it's very nuanced, you know, the workflows and where and how you add things and change things in the workflows. And I think you just kind of have to Right. I was a full-time physician for 14 years inside Epic. I've done three Epic Go Live. So I just, yeah, certainly don't know the other EMRs as well, but luckily this is an Epic shop yeah. too. So I know that one really well. And so it, you do have to have some kind of in-depth knowledge, if you will, right, to make sure that you're doing it in a way that makes sense. And then, you know, being part of a payer has a lot of advantages, right, Kate? Because guess what? We can uh, tackle prior authorizations. Why do they exist? Why, yeah. do, they, why do they have to be here, there's initiatives that I can do here being part of a payer that I couldn't do in a provider only system. And those are the things, right? If we're able to really tackle that and take that or remove that from our doctor's workflows, I guarantee you we can add digital tools to our workflows if we removed all prior authorizations from their lives. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and the fact that you've been through three Epic implementations, that might be another separate conversation we have to have because yeah. I'm sure there's a lot there. Absolutely. Um, it's been a while, but absolutely. Yeah. I just grew up in the era as a trainee where everybody was going to an EMR, right? Yeah. I can't remember the number, but I think it was even in 2011, only like 10%, if that, of health systems had an EMR. And I'm totally, I'm, I'm butchering that number and it could be 15 years ago, it was 2%. But either way, point is that I think we sometimes fail to really take into account how long EMRs have really been part of our world. They, they really, in the whole scheme of things, haven't been part of our role for long. And so I just came online, if you will, as a doc during the time of shift from paper targeting to EMRs. And back in the day, nobody knew how to do go live. So what did they do? They said, yeah. hey, you're a resident, you're a fellow, you're young. <laughs> Why don't you do this for us? And so that's really, it's a, it's a fun story, but it was really the way we did things back then before this now formalized kind of implementation go lives. Yeah. Based on some of the things you've said that you don't mind being someone who's who's a leader and even if it means being a pusher sometimes, but this is how it has to be when there are new ways of doing things and new tools. And even though it puts more on you, it, I think it really has been beneficial that you have that personality and that you're, you're willing to drive things. Absolutely. No, I 100% agree. And I mean, again, if I didn't have the IT and Epic shop under me, I think that being just out in front and trying to do digital without being able to affect and improve the infrastructure, it would just take much, much longer to get where we need to go. And I've seen that. And that's exactly, you know, if you look around the kind of ecosystem and you do this, Kate, I know you probably recognize that the chief digital officer's roadmap isn't always synced up and aligned with the CIO's roadmap, isn't always synced up and aligned with the CMIO's roadmap, right? Right. Uh, there's yeah. kind of opposing roadmaps of trying to get to where and right. There's always this essential battle of, hey, the EMR can do that. Why are we looking at a 
vendor to do the same thing, these small 5%, 10% improvements. And so there's a bit of a battle and that sometimes isn't not necessarily unhealthy, right. To have those kind of really robust conversations, but, but sometimes that does lead to impasses where the right thing isn't always done because there's just a battle at the top of kind of what's our path of what technology platform are we going to use? And so having those under me, the buck, I guess, stops with me to some degree with there. So I can kind of make a decision and, and move forward. Yeah. So one of the common themes we're always hearing is that it's all about the data. Everything in patient care comes down to data, having it, being able to leverage it. So you talk a bit about that. You know, I mean, I will pander a little bit to our chief data analytics officer, Richard Clark at Highmark Health, but it's all about the data. And so having payer-based data, having provider-based data, having a Google partnership and the capabilities that they bring around data and, you know, creating what we're calling the healthcare data engine that, you know, they do with Mayo and other, right, provider partnerships that they have to Google and and learning from others. It's pretty incredible what that data fabric uh, can achieve to then create those curated solutions personalized to that member, to that patient, to that consumer at the right time in their journey. And then that allows us to orchestrate care the proper way and really drive people, engage with them properly on a regular basis and be able to guide them to the right next best action, right, that they need. And so we can get to a world in which just, you know, the example I love is, okay, I don't, you know, I'm going to make up something about you, but I'm going to pretend that you have a (laughs) three-year-old. for a bit and say, you know, if your three-year-old has had five ear infections in the last two months and had a perforated eardrum, you know, in the ER, and then you went to an urgent care and you used the AMWELL or Teladoc virtual care provider. So again, you weren't just living inside one healthcare system. Let's just assume you sought out care in different modalities, different places. Well, we should have that knowledge, but you do, let's just say your three-year-old has a pediatrician in a healthcare setting, that pediatrician then, and the healthcare system should be able to then guide you and say, you know what, Kate, we think your three-year-old should have an ENT appointment based on everything that's happened to her proactively. We're engaging you. You as a mom don't need to say, should I go see ENT? We should guide you. You know, you should see ENT. And you know what, because of all the things, we think there's physical exams needed right now. We don't have a, you know, a device in your home right now. So virtual care may not be the right offering, even though I love virtual care, this one might need be best in person. And we have an appointment to surface to you 3 p.m. tomorrow or 5 p.m. on Friday or whatever. And here, click a button, you choose what's best for you and your lifestyle and what's needed. And maybe we even get better than that. And I know what's best for you and surface that to you. And you choose, you click, it's there. All the authorizations are done in the back end. You show up, we know who you are. And right, the doctor's well-versed, understands the pediatrician is not like, why are you here? Who sent you here? Right, which, yeah. which but they actually know, you know, the ENT is like, yeah. yeah, okay, you know, I know exactly what's going on. And thank you so much for coming. We wanted to see you. We think X, Y, Z, right? Like, how do we get to that world? Which is what we need to get to. You know, simplistically, it's the Netflix recommendation engine, 
<laughs> right? You know, how do we, right? yeah. we want to surface to you what we recommend, what we guide, you choose what's best for you, but, and we should guide you though. We shouldn't just, you know, I think sometimes we got to foolishly say, we just want it to be hundred percent patient choice. Well, if you have a hernia and you need to be examined, virtual care may not be the best setting for that. So we should guide you and say for this, maybe in person's best, but for these other 10 things, virtual is actually a great tool or even asynchronous care. We could just do a chat bot, you know, to engage with you, but we should, we should guide you in that setting and to guide you we need to know you and to know you yeah. we need data right and so i think that's our journey here with our partnership with google with having a payer and a provider we feel like we have all the elements to go down that path with data yeah i mean what you're saying i'm just picturing this in my mind <laughs> i had twins and they were preemies and my son had to be on a monitor and all of this was so disconnected. There was a monitor company, the pediatrician, right. the, the NICU, nobody talked and no one, it was such a, so I'm just thinking now, I'm like, wow, to have had a connected model right. would have been game changing for me. So the Kate, I mean, you're right. So you, you know, this doing what you're doing that has the infrastructure is not there. Yes. In current oh, yeah. Right. So it's going to be a little bit of just down the basement and a work, if you will, mm -hmm. too to lay down the pipes that we need to be able to do that and key partnerships, right? Because then Nick, you may have given you a monitor and is that the right, is that the right monitor? I mean, is that the right vendor in the company that we create those partnerships with? And so then it yeah. all needs to be connected in a way that, right, for you as a consumer, you know, and going through that really, I'm a pediatrician. So that's a really tough journey to come out of the NICU and you just to feel alone, right? In the NICU, you've got 24 seven nursing, everybody's okay. on top of, right? You remember mm -hmm. that. Yeah. It's traumatic, right? And now you're alone and now you're like, you don't know, do I need care? Is this a problem? Is this not a problem? The, yeah. And that alarm beeped incessantly, I'm sure, all the time with false <laughs> yeah. alarms. And you yeah, were left as a mom to figure out when that alarm meant something and when it didn't, right? Whereas it mm -hmm. should have been the health system monitoring. And I'm not blaming the health system. It's just, again, that's what we need to get to. It yeah. should be the whole system that should be monitoring that and saying, hey, this one's real, Kate, there's something going on or this be right? So we have to get there. I think we all know we want to get there. And so it is hard work, but the infrastructure, um, that's what we're working on to, to get exactly there. But we need to know where we're going with that. So that right to left thinking of what does success look like. And for that, we're, we've labeled that living health, what I just described to you. And so it's exciting. We know where we want to go to. It's now just working backwards from there to build all the components. Yeah. Very well put. All right. I think I've taken up a little bit more of your time than I intended, but um, I really enjoy speaking to you. You have such a unique perspective. And I think that it's really going to be valuable for others to hear about because, you know, we are seeing so much change and transformation and it's really important, I think, to get those different perspectives out there. Well, I really appreciate you reaching out, Kate. Thank you so much. And I, I enjoyed being on today. Thank you for listening to this podcast from healthsystemcio.com. To hear other podcasts, visit our website or subscribe to our account in iTunes at healthsystemcio.com backslash podcast.